0: Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tagos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our Webinar Wednesdays, when we sit down with Smart Karma insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. If you like what we do, consider leaving us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast app. As this really helps more people discover the show. Thank you for being with us and enjoy the episode.
1: Hello and welcome to another webinar by Smart Karma. I'm Valerie, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming analyst Daniel Tabush, who will be taking us through his views on Asian banks. Daniel Tabush has 25 years of experience analyzing Asia Pacific banks, including HSBC, Standard Chartered, and Japanese and Australian banks. At the same time, his research and consulting focuses on global banking issues, including the regulatory environment. He was the head of Asian bank research at the number one Asian brokerage CLSA for most of his career, overseeing coverage of 80 banks and 10 analysts in Asia-Pacific. Daniel started his own independent bank research and consultancy in 2012 under the better name Tabush Report. Before we start, a bit of standard housekeeping. As always, please feel free to send in your questions for Daniel throughout the webinar using the Q and A button on your Zoom app, and we will do our best to get to them during the Q and A section. Please do not reshare the contents of this webinar without expressed permission. A recording will be available afterwards on the registration page and will be sent to all attendees. And with that, Daniel, thank you for being with us today. The floor is yours.
2: Okay, thank you, Valerie. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining for our Asian Bank presentation, Risks and Rewards. Uh, Typically, when we do one of these presentations, it's far easier than it is now. It's either very negative or very positive with with little in between. I would say this time, it's very, very different. We have to be aware of some countries or some banks where we have to be very cautious with respect to credit costs, to bad loans, to economic growth, and other countries where a lot of those metrics look very, very good. The first thing that most banks, analysts, and people looking at banks will look at is uh, credit growth. There's fairly good credit growth in several countries across Asia, India, Indonesia, China um, at the highest end, and Hong Kong, Japan, and Singapore at the lowest end. And that's fine. We often see Southeast Asia leading North Asian countries, for instance. China's typically one of the fastest growers, and Vietnam, which is not in this chart, but they're typically one of the fastest growers. The problem with this chart now, when we had about two years of almost no growth, it misses the perspective of what's happened since, say, 2019. And we have to take that into consideration. We call it loan seasoning. Here, we're talking about total credit growth over the past three years, from June 2019 to June 2022. And this is very important because this is where there can be very big differences across the region. Vietnam and China, 45, 47% growth over those three years, off the charts effectively. The risk for these countries is that they can't continue to grow at the fast pace that they're growing. They've already been growing so quickly. That's the most important takeaway. The second one is that if there's deceleration in the economy, let's take China as an easy one, There's more risk for bad loan formation, for credit costs to rise and dramatically, and for loan growth to ratchet down. Of course, when economic growth weakens a lot, banks typically become risk averse and don't want to lend as much. The other point here to look at is look at Thailand, look at Indonesia, look at India. I'm picking a few countries where there's generally good credit growth or not a huge amount of credit penetration in the system. They haven't grown, they've hardly grown between four and 12% over the past three years cumulatively. So the point here is that where we're seeing a pickup in credit growth in all of these countries, it can accelerate, it can continue, it can be maintained. And as banks analysts or people who look at banks, focus on banks, you may not have to worry too much about that number suddenly gapping down or leading to credit costs and bad loans. A couple of other standouts here. Taiwan, typically pedestrian credit growth. The banks in Taiwan have expanded credit more than almost every other country in Asia over the past three years, 31%. And this is a, it's an important point if that economy is going to weaken a fair degree as an exporter of, of product to the US and to Europe. The other one that stands out here is Australia. We know that the RBA has raised rates quite a bit these banks actually haven't grown that much in the past three years. We can see that Australia might be at a similar pace as Indonesia or China or the Philippines, but this is new. They haven't done a lot of lending in the past three years. So even if RBA continues to raise rates or has raised rates quite a bit, we may not see as much credit costs as a lot of people are expecting. We'll go into that in more detail. So now we're gonna go through a few of the countries specifically. This is the one that we're most concerned about, population growth in Hong Kong. This is through June this year. And notice that the title is usual residents. So that's the most core. These are the people who generally live in Hong Kong. This is down 2%, it's actually 2.1% year on year. There's never been anything like this. And uh, this is even without all the flights being reinstated entirely. So we can only imagine how harrowing it'll be in the second half of the year when people say enough is enough. A lot of economists will base their economic growth assumptions on core population growth. So there's obvious implications for economic growth. And from a bank's perspective, that leads to loan demand, may lead to a credit cost, it may lead to lead to collateral. Uh, valuation implications, none of it being positive. The banks in Hong Kong, of course, they've got their own issues, and we'll talk later about their potential issues in China. Hang Seng Bank is probably considered one of the safest banks in Hong Kong. Notice how its impairment costs in the first half compared to operating profit is higher than even the global financial crisis, much higher. And the funny thing is, not in in a humorous way, is that its um, impairment costs in the first half are lower as a proportion of loans. The point here is that these banks, Hang Seng as well, they don't have a lot of NIM. There's not a lot of margin to absorb higher impairment costs, unlike 10 years ago, unlike during the GFC. So the same $100 million of impairment costs has a greater negative impact on profit now. This is also just showing that the numbers are ratcheting much, much higher. We don't believe this is all Hong Kong. Some of this will be to China-related lending. And we've seen that with a lot of the banks in Hong Kong. So it's not just their own issues. We all hear about the developer problems in China. Oftentimes when we do our bank research, we look at companies' financials. We look at interest coverage. We might look at debt to EBITDA just as a window on what to expect for the banks. This is a a sample set of very, very indebted property developers in China. And we see first the interest coverage gapping down in 20 and 21 and then hitting 0.5 in the first quarter. It's not a secret that these guys can't pay. The banks um, have been uh, aggressively lending in China over the past three years. These guys, these developers borrowing in 2019 and 2020 would have no idea what's gonna happen. So this goes to the the most immediate concerns about developers' debt, their credit quality, the impairment costs that banks in China will have to take, but also banks in Hong Kong, possibly global banks, which do this sort of lending, DBS comes to mind, Standard Chartered, HSBC, but it's real. This is dreadful data for these companies. Even if the banks don't report all of it, there are clear risks there. There is a lot of unseasoned loans, loans which haven't been tried and tested in a downturn with HSBC's China Corporate Loan Book. To put this into perspective, HSBC Group saw its total loans contract over this period. Very big difference. This is the bank's Infamous now, pivot to Asia, not well-timed and very normal for HSBC. On average, banks in China are showing 7% growth of impairment costs, seven, in the second quarter year-on-year. That is not a crisis. And this is our concern. Our concern is that we don't easily see what's really happening. To be fair, there are a few banks that show 300% or 200%. We just chose the top largest ones with populated data. And this is one reason we believe that a lot of people will have to focus on HSBC, Standard Chartered Bank, DBS, maybe, uh, maybe one or two others, maybe a couple in, um, in Hong Kong. When people really want to see what's happening in China, it may not come out very clearly in the numbers. And to us, this is proof of that. Going on to India, this was one of the countries with very little cumulative growth in credit over the past uh, three years. Corporate gearing has come down, corporate debt levels have come down, or people may remember that this was a big concern some years ago. It's not a concern now, and credit growth is accelerating very, very nicely. So this is one that we're happy with. We don't see this as as a big risk this can be maintained for quite some time as we would consider this more of a catch-up in terms of credit growth. When this is happening with widening margins, very powerful for income. The banks in India are notorious for not lowering lending rates by as much as the RBI lowers rates. And this is one way that this can be seen with the bank numbers. So high volume, high and rising margins, probably with lowering credit costs makes India a very interesting story. Thailand, another one, especially when we come into the second half now, which is peak of the tourism season, which is fairly, fairly new. We've been in the middle of monsoon for some months. Notice over the past four quarters, Siam Commercial Bank it had a reorganization. So its name is now SCBX, it's the same entity, really. Over the past four quarters, there's been a steady rise of net interest income growth. It hasn't been as wobbly as the previous couple of years. And this is against rising margins, improving current account and savings accounts, improving loan yields. It's a very nice story. This bank, like K-Bank, will have a reasonable exposure to SMEs and the tourism sector as well. So it's a good story. It's one that is particular to this bank because they've had a reorganization. This bank decided not to invest in a cryptocurrency kind of business. And that's uh, gained a lot more interest in the bank recently. Singapore. This is DBS Bank Hong Kong. It's gross loans uh, in Singapore. It's an an entity where we have the, the data. Very, very high growth. Some of the highest growth of any bank in Asia, in any region over this period. That's concerning because of the economic growth prospects in Hong Kong. Also, because of the economic growth prospects in China, where some of this lending will go into. We generally think of um, DBS or Singapore banks as being very well managed, which they are. But we have to remember that a lot of them do have this exposure. And in some cases, the growth has been very high. For DBS, they probably have now about a third of their loans in Hong Kong and China and and Taiwan, which is part of greater China. Here, this is DBS Groups. This is no longer just DBS Bank uh, Hong Kong. What's interesting here is that for the group, it had 101 million SING dollars of credit costs in the first half. Almost all of that is from Hong Kong and rest of greater China, which is basically China and Taiwan. A third of their loans, but almost all of their credit costs. It's, It's a telling point on that region and the risks to what would normally be very safe banks where we wouldn't worry, especially right now, where Singapore is enjoying huge amounts of um, inflows in terms of uh, population and people wanting to to move there. There are these other risks. Australia, we always think of these few banks as completely homogenous. For the most part, they are, but we have to remember there are some differences here. And we know everybody's worried about the housing market in Australia. And this happens, it seems to happen every, I don't know, 15 years or so in Australia. And it never really gets that bad, not even in 2000, 2001. Oswide, Bendigo and Adelaide, small banks, mortgage lenders mostly, not international. These numbers of five to 10 basis points of loans, approximately, are a long-term historical average, very, very different than Macquarie. And Macquarie, of course, is not a normal commercial bank. It's much more of an investment bank, a trading bank where long-term credit costs to loans at over 40 basis points. So very, very big difference. And even amongst the four core banks, NAB, 35 basis points, Westpac, about 22. So there are some differences here. We have to remember that we don't actually think there will be as much in the way of dire NPLs, especially residential mortgage NPLs in Australia, as a lot of people are considering. but. Uh, If one has that view, we understand from this that there are differences in how banks manage the risk and differences in loan portfolios. This is Japan, this is uh, average ROAs, and this goes back to the very original story we had and partly still have for Asian banks coming out of 20 and 21 into a much more normalized environment, ROAs ratcheting upward in 22. Remember for Japan, it's a March year-end A lot of that is due to uh, improving um, credit costs. We're now at the first quarter, so June is their first quarter 23. We're at about 24, 25 basis points ROA. Of course, these are not high numbers in a regional context, but uh, for Japan in recent years, ROAs really only peak at around 35 basis points. The point here with improved margins, with an improving economy opening up a lot more, with a weaker yen and a, a good substitute uh, for a lot of durable goods companies in Japan compared to Korea. And now only at the very first quarter, these numbers could be a lot higher as we go through the year. Again, be sort of 30 basis points or maybe even higher. In the U.S., aggregate LDR has just finally started to turn up. A lot of this is actually driven by CNI, commercial industrial loans, which is good, as opposed to government loans. This may be one thing that the Fed is concerned about. One reason that we're showing this is because it's still very low. LDRs are very, very low still in the US. They can still rise further even during periods of high inflation without good growth, stagflation. You can still get sharply higher LDRs. That's generally positive for banks, expanding loans while deposits are not rising.
1: Thank you for the presentation, Daniel. As mentioned before, you can now send in your questions for our speaker using the Q&A button on your Zoom app. Perhaps I can start the Q&A session off first with a question from our team. Daniel, in which Asian countries do you think that banks have the worst outlooks or will continue to not have such sunny outlooks?
2: Yeah, well, definitely Hong Kong and China. There can't be much of a debate about that from what we looked at. We haven't included much on Taiwan and Korea in this presentation, but those would be the other ones where these countries focus a lot on selling products that U.S. consumers buy, and probably a lot of that will not be very strong. At the same time, China with its policies in place, could mean um, those sales numbers, those exports core uh, economic drivers for both Korea and Taiwan are not particularly strong. Taiwan, as I said from this chart, we're concerned with how much they've lent recently. For Korea, we're probably a little more concerned with um, yen becoming a weaker relative to the yuan and being almost a perfect substitute. Those would be the four countries we'd be most, most worried about. Did you want uh, the ones we're most positive on or I could?
1: Yeah, that was going to be my next question. You know, which Asian countries do you think will have, you know, on the flip side, the best outlooks?
2: India is a nice one because it's, it's also so big and it's one that is actually different, more positive now than it was a few years ago in terms of the debt situation. They haven't grown. So and the banks have plenty of capacity to lend. So that's that's a nice one. I think there can be a China plus one policy that benefits a lot of countries. Maybe India is one of them, but I would imagine that Thailand is also one of them. And uh, there hasn't been a lot of credit growth in Thailand. Indonesia, credit penetration is already very low. It's a highly specialized market. There's not a lot of perfect competition with those banks. So these are three places that look um, particularly positive to us.
1: Okay. Sounds good. And we have another question. Daniel, do you see any banks using technology or fintech to move the needle on their overall ability to improve the efficiency or value?
2: BNI might be one. Siam Commercial might be one, but I think it's probably farther away than BNI. Generally, I would say moving the needle is difficult. <laughs> These banks, they're plain vanilla banks and. To get to that point will take a lot of time. So generally, no. But those those two come to mind, having had some recent announcements and a real, you know, somewhat of a focus there. BNI more so than sign commercial.
1: All right, thank you so much. Another question would be: Which is your top pick amongst Singapore banks such as DBS, OCBC, and UOB, and why?
2: Well, UOB probably seems the safest in terms of it's sort of 50ish, 51% exposure to Singapore, but also it's um, relative growth rates in Hong Kong and China. OCBC Wing Hang has had a very high growth in that region. So that's a concern. DBS, as you saw, has had a, a lot of growth in that area as well. UOB has a lot more SME lending than the other two banks. That's generally higher margin much more core backbone of the the Singapore economy. So it's almost splitting hairs to a degree because they're very similar these banks, but uh, UOB would, would stand out a little bit better probably.
1: Good to know, thank you so much. Another question related to actually Singapore banks is that with OCBC increasing their interest rates on their deposit accounts, do you think other Asian banks will follow closely?
2: It's normally how it happens, but uh, with very low loan-to-deposit ratios, it's almost in the bank's interest not to do that, not to follow. We don't actually always see that happening. A lot of banks in Asia take the view that they have to support the interest income of their depositors, of all the retirees or others. Uh, I mean, these interest rates make no sense. Of course, you can't really buy noodles with that kind of interest income, but um, The answer is they usually follow, but there's no dire need and they could actually improve, probably improve their profitability if they hold off or or don't do it, maybe lag one or two months.
1: Yeah. Good point. And we have actually another question would be, why are Asian banks slower to increase interest rates and if inflation in the region is a cause for concern yet?
2: A lot, of, a lot of banks don't want to increase loan rates by as much as the central bank because they don't actually see so much demand, um, which you know, that's the, the strange thing with how the Fed is positioning itself in this world at the moment with droughts and war, logistics, China, probably mm-hmm. the biggest drivers of the problems with inflation, not excessive demand. That would be one thing. I mean, banks in India have done this for a very long time because they want to preserve their margins. If we're talking about deposit rates, generally, not, not for every, every uh, country, but generally, loan-to-deposit ratios are low. So you don't really need to uh, bid up your funding. Korea would be a different story where loan-to-deposit ratios are over 100. Australia is another story, over 100. Uh, they're wholesale funded, so they generally would have to raise rates to keep their money to, to lend. So th- those, are, those are probably the different reasons If the economic growth is very strong, if they're worried about um, too much growth in property prices, property lending, then maybe they could bid up pricing. They could raise their lending rates quite a bit, but I don't think they're seeing things that way.
1: Gotcha. Thank you so much for that. We do have another question and that would be, is the UN depreciation a cause for concern for us in the Southeast Asian region?
2: Yes, it's a cause for concern. Most everything in China is a cause for concern for everybody in this region. At mm-hmm. um, on the one hand, they're upsetting their economy and, and their population to a staggering degree. At the other hand, they're trying to support it. It's hard to square that uh, that uh, equation. We've seen from from Thailand in 1996, and then finally in the middle of 97 that when your currency is weakening and you try to do something about it, it could go terribly wrong. HKMA is dealing with huge amounts of uh, foreign exchange uh, reserve decline. So yeah, there are a lot of things happening in this part of the world, let's call it greater China, that could certainly impact the rest of Asia. The most obvious thing that we think about from the old days of the Asian financial crisis is a competitive devaluation. The second thing that we have to think about and we have to think about it now is if the marginal buyer is no longer there, meaning China, marginal tourist is no longer there, it does have negative implications for these Asian countries.
1: Let's close this session off with one last question from our team actually. So Daniel, We have gotten a request for you to share about which Asian banks you like the most and maybe rank your top three.
2: That's a good question. That's usually what people want the most. I would probably put BNI sort of up there at the top of the list. And part of this is is not core. We love the core. We love the fundamentals. But there doesn't seem to be a huge recognition in the market about the merits of BNI. We generally look at market capitalization, compare that to assets. The other one would be uh, Siam Commercial. And we've seen Krung Thai Bank, it's a big state bank in Thailand. Total market capitalization is up about 25% this year. For this bank, Siam Commercial, probably the one of those savvy commercial banks of the large ones, it's total market capitalization is down. down about 10 to 15% um, this year, and yet with some of the best improvement in fundamentals. This is all very geographically driven. So when we talk about which countries we like them, there has to be a bank there. And the next one would probably be ICICI. There are a lot of other smaller, maybe a little bit too nifty uh, banks in India, which you would have to have a, a lot of degree of comfort before saying one of those is one of your most favorite banks in all of India. But ICICI is a a private bank. It's been around, it's been in crisis and knows how to manage the crisis. It's doing it nicely now. So that's why it would be another one in that list.
1: Fantastic list, Daniel. Thank you so much. We do have one last-minute question that just came in. If you don't mind, we just answer that real quick. If it's not too late, do you think, or you know, will Grab and Singtel's digital bank be much of a game changer in Asia?
2: Probably for them, it's a game changer because they're going from zero to something. I don't think a lot of these fintech, these um, challenger-type banks. I don't think they destroyed the business of banks which have been there for so long and have all their branches, have all their depositors. I remember when we first set up to Bush Report, that was the first thing um, clients wanted to hear about. FinTech disruption and all the problems facing Asian banks because of that. And that was over 10 years ago. And here we are today and the banks generally control almost the entire space. From the other perspective, the fintech banks, the challenger banks, or whatever they are, they can do well, but it it means there's enough share to go around.
1: Awesome. That's our webinar for today. Thank you so much for your time today, Daniel, and thank you everyone for attending. If you wish to keep track of Daniel's work, I recommend following his profile on Smart Karma so you never miss any of his insights. Please note that Daniel is also available for bespoke research requests or premium services. So if you wish to engage him for that, please contact your Smart Karma account manager. If you have any other questions or comments, please email us at research at smartkarma.com. Thank you so much, Daniel, and thank you, everyone, once again.
0: Thanks, Valerie. Bye for thank now. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please share it with your networks, subscribe to the podcast feed so you don't miss an episode, and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you next time.